0: This morning to our study of the book of Romans in Romans chapter 8. This is our second week in this chapter that many consider the the apex of of the New Testament and of the scripture itself. Uh, The greatest chapter, according to some commentators, it's a personal preference, I guess, but the greatest chapter in all of scripture. We'll be looking this morning at Romans 8, verses 12 Hear the word of the Lord. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Holy God, we do come with thanksgiving this day, uh, a day that you've made, a day that you have uh, ordered to be uh, set aside, that we would not only gather to worship you, but rest, rest from our labors, as we come to be reminded that we rest in your grace, not only on this day, but each day. As we come now to this time of our worship, where we consider your word, we pray that you would be found faithful to your promise, that you would be at work through your word, your word would do its work within those who hear and believe, that we would have our minds renewed according to your word, we would have greater understanding of who you are and what it is that you are doing in this world and in our lives, that we would also know what you would have us to do. Lord, as we see This time, that our study, that our consideration would not only be for our minds and for our lives, but to your honor as well. Will we yield to it? Steve Blass was a pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates from the mid-1960s into the 1970s. In 1971, he was a key part of the uh, rotation that won the uh, World Series. In 1972, his career was still blossoming and he was named to be pitcher for the National League All-Stars. In 1973, however, things began to take He began with a wild pitch, which every pitcher one time or another experiences, but those wild pitches became a little bit more frequent. Before long, he was as likely to throw the ball over the backstop as he was into the catcher's mitt. It was totally unexplainable. There was nothing physically wrong with him, but he would just go into these periods where he was unable to throw strikes whatsoever. At the end of that season, he was in the minors trying to figure out what the problem is, and by the end of 1974, just two years removed, a year, uh, a year separated from his All-Star uh, appearance, he was out of baseball for good. It was totally inexplicable. It was totally unexpected. He had developed some sort of a, a psychological disorder that now bears his name. It's known as the Steve Sachs Syndrome where people who are otherwise capable, or where uh, players who are otherwise capable can't do the most routine things that they have done their entire lives. There is totally nothing that's to isn't entirely, an entirely psychological. A handful of players in the subsequent years have also experienced the, the, Steve, uh, the, uh, the, the um, Steve Glass syndrome, which is often more commonly just referred to as the Yips devastating as for a baseball career as the yips are the reality is every one of us also experiences the yips in our spiritual lives the apostle paul expressed it in chapter 7 when he says i do what i don't want to do i don't do what i want to do that's the the spiritual yips and as devastating as it is for a baseball career it is every bit as debilitating and devastating for us as we live our lives and as we walk with our God. Romans chapter six, chapter 6 through 8 are about sanctification, about the process by which we grow in godliness, uh, God being at work within us. Our catechism calls it the, the the work of God's free grace where we die to sin and we, we grow in Christ's righteousness. More simply, we see it put in Scripture in the Times about that we would become more like Christ. It's growing in grace. It's all about growing in grace. Romans chapter 1-5 through 5 essentially is about justification, the way that we are converted, the way that we become Christians, become or belong to God. And Paul begins by kind of laying out the common condition for every one of us. Every one of us sins and falls short of God's glory. There's nothing we can do to help ourselves, and yet God has intervened by revealing a righteousness apart from the law, apart from keeping the rules in the person of Christ who died for us and that everyone who believes is now justified, declared righteous. And he moves in, what does it mean for us to grow in that righteousness? In chapter 7 he he does declare his own frailty even in this process. And then in Romans chapter 8, as we saw a few weeks ago, Paul introduces the Holy Spirit who we are told dwells within everyone who believes. Here in Romans 8 verses 12 through 17 we see uh, Paul telling us some hard things that we need to hear and that the Spirit is involved in our lives. The hard things that he says that, that we need to hear are these, is those who, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you put death to the deeds of the body, you will. Religious, and so we don't hear, we don't think a whole lot about it sometimes, but if you think about that, if we live according to our our instincts, at least the flesh, which is not our skin, it's not the tissue, as sometimes thought, it's not even the natural desires, most of which God has given to us, they are of themselves, right or neutral. It it is the desires and the, the values of those who are from Christ, the, essentially the values of the world, those things that are, are apart from uh, God's way, the desires of the fall. is what Paul's talking about when he talks about the, the desires of, of the flesh. And he says that if we persist in this way, we die. The Old Puritans refer to what Paul is describing here as mortification, which means killing sin. It's probably best and most memorably expressed by the Puritan writer John Owen, who said always be killing sin or sin will be killing. It's easier said than done. And how do we do it? We listen to it at first. It almost seems as if Paul's just saying, Okay, if you've got sin, just stop I don't know how many of you have seen the, the video from Mad TV. I couldn't help but come to mind Bob Newhart, who's kind of reprising, spoofing a role that his uh, first TV show, where he was a counselor. The scene begins, Bob Newhart is walking into his office and a young lady walks into his office and he sits down and he hears her uh, her uh, problem and first he explains his, his billing procedure. He says he charges $5 for the whole hour, but he doesn't give change if they don't go the whole hour. He asks if she's fine with that, she says that sounds great. He guaranteed they weren't going to go the whole hour. Once they had the payment arrangements made, he says, all right, what's, what's your problem? And so she describes the problem that she has, and she says that she has difficulty getting into tight spaces or even anything that she says is, is boxy. And so he diagnoses it, and he says, so you have claustrophobia? And she said, yeah, I suppose I do. So he pauses for a moment, and he says, well, I'm going to give to you two words. I want you to listen carefully. Want you then to take these words and apply them to your life. She asked, so should I write them down? And he says, Well, if you want, most people, it's only two words, most people can most people can remember them. She says, Okay, and he says, Are you ready? And she said, Yes. And he says, Stop it. That's the council. We're done. He charges the five dollars and she decides she'll take the whole hour. So she runs through a whole list of litany of things that she struggles with in her life, and every one of them, he just says, stop it, until she pushes back, and she's frustrated, and she, she's angry with this, we can hear what Paul is saying, look, if you, if you if you live by the flesh, you need to put it to death, you need to just stop whatever it is you're doing, that's what it kind of sounds like that Paul is saying here, the reality is, by the time somebody gets to a counselor, or even if a friend comes to you and, and shares a struggle that they have, they already want to stop it, the reason they're sharing that with you is they don't know how to stop it. Unfortunately, what Paul is saying here is not just stuff. And he have tried to deal with sin in our lives at times, and the reality is, is sometimes it feels like you're playing the arcade game, whack-a-mole. Every time something kind of pops up, you're struggling something, you try to smack it down only to find something else pop up. You smack that down, and then the thing that you've already smacked down seems to pop back up in your life. And whenever that happens, it's incredibly frustrating. In fact, it's defeating. It's tomorrow. You wonder if you will ever make progress. And otherwise, it's so difficult. One of the things we need to keep in mind is that sin is not just Sin is a complex network of values and idols that is at work deep within each one of us. And so when we play the the whack-a-mole game, we are treating sin as if it is just the, the symptoms, just the manifestations of it. We're trying to stop whatever the behavior is, but it's not actually killing the root. It's going to resurface at some point. saying, simply, put it to death. The passage says, if by the Spirit you put to death the sins of the flesh. In other words, it is the Spirit who is at work within us to put sin to death. It is the Spirit who has the power to do that. The question is, how? How does the Spirit see in this passage there are three things that the spirit does i'm not suggesting this is an exhaustive thing but these are three things the spirit always is doing the spirit is doing in your work as he is speaking to you as he is at work one is that he points us to the power to be able to put our sin to death second is he reminds us of what god has already done for us and the third thing that he does is he reminds us of who we are us of what our identity is in Christ. Now, the first thing is the, the power of the Holy Spirit, which is largely what I've sort of been talking about already. See, it's the spirit that is at work. It's not a matter of you merely disciplining yourself so that you stop the behaviors and, and the patterns of behaviors uh, that are inappropriate, whether socially or before God. And the idea of putting sin to death is to remove those simply removing those desires is not as easy as as it would sound. We we can't remove those and then simply leave a vacuum. We're not wired. We're not creating that. The Spirit does something very different. He does what uh, a a Scottish pastor, Thomas Chalmers, uh, described in in an essay as the expulsive power of a new affection. Just the title itself is Dealing with the fact that there's, that there's something that we cling to, we have this need. And, and simply removing it is, isn't going to work because once that hole is there, something else is going to, it's going to fill it. It has to be. Listen to what Chalmers says in his essay about what, what an ex, the expulsive power of a new affection is. He says, No one can dispossess the heart of an old affection but by the expulsive power of a new one. We love what seems desirable to us. Thus, we will only change what we love when something proves to be more desirable to us than what we already love. In his own confession, he says, I will always love sin and the world until I truly sense that Christ is better. And so what the Holy Spirit is doing, the power of the Holy Spirit, the way the Holy Spirit is functioning, is not just... Recognizing the way that we are made and the complexity of things is identifying the sin and the idols within us and points us to something else, something better, to Christ, the love of God. So that as that gains our attention and as we see God's love for us more clearly, then the love for whatever it is that God has said that we shouldn't be doing, whatever it is that seems to have it's replaced by the love for God. Love is, becomes the, 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 the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is at work in, in giving us that new affection, that new desire. And when that new desire is at work and when that new desire is blossoming and bearing fruit, then it chokes out the things that are contrary to us. And so the Holy Spirit is at work That way. The Holy Spirit is the power and He is providing the the, the new affection by doing the other two things that we see evident in this passage. One is the second thing that we see, and the Holy Spirit is doing this, is He's reminding us of what God has already done for us. And it's a principle that you've heard us say over and over again here, but it's worth noting and and remembering is that in the Scripture, God's way of working indicative always precedes the imperative for you English majors. For those of you who are not English majors, what God has already done, what God has already declared you to be, that's the indicative, always comes before He gives us a commandment that we are to obey. We see this pattern throughout Scripture, it's not just incidental. Most amazing to me. We find in in the preface to the the Ten Commandments, and we miss this all the time. Most of us will read the Ten Commandments sort of in a backwards way, but the preface of the Ten Commandments, before God gives the law, God says this, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt. I have delivered you from slavery. And, And then he moves in. memorize the Ten Commandments, we, we know this, but something in our mind, maybe it's just the religious nature of, of, our, of our brokenness, but we always hear, if you keep these rules, God will deliver you from slavery. But what God says in the preface of the Ten Commandments, I've already delivered you. Now here's life. And that pattern is found over and over and again in the scripture. Whenever there's a command, if you were to look, there's always something in indicative, not saying you are my child, you are whatever, there's something that is there first. That something that God has already done or an indication of who you are that always comes prior to the command. And that's true. Right? I mean, if you look at the beginning of this passage, before God says anything about putting sin to death, or even the spirit of putting sin to death, he begins, even in just this section, uh, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Um, and then he goes on with the hard part. He's saying to us, here's indicative, you're not in debt to the flesh. You're not in debt to sin. You owe sin nothing. It doesn't own you anymore. That's an indicative. You are free. You have been freed if you were in Christ. And you back up. Well, why are we free? Back up to what Paul has already said, because God has revealed the righteousness that is apart from the law of the person of Jesus Christ who became like us, who died for our sins, paid the penalty for our sins, rose again to give us uh, give us hope in order that we might believe, and that as we're trusting in him. God has already provided for us before we have believed. He has done that in advance. Now that he has already done this, he's saying, here's how you ought to live. And so we look at this passage and we see him saying, indicative first, you are not a debtor. You don't need to listen to sin. You don't need to listen to the, to the, the cravings of, of, of flesh because even though it once owned you, it doesn't own you anymore. Even though the voice is familiar and it may be comfortable there, you owe it nothing. Even more than, just, even more than that, the very first word of this passage is we're looking at. So then. That refers to everything that's come before what comes before is the Holy Spirit. It dwells within everyone who believes. It's part of God's grace. So we see God already at work here, and part of the way that the Holy Spirit is at work in order to give us a new affection is he points to what God has already done for us, and the grace of God is abundantly evident throughout this passage and throughout this book. And so the Spirit is pointing us to what God has done, to the love of God, that preceded anything you or I have done It's simply an expression of his love because it is still struggling with the yes. Verse 2, you have been set free. Verse 5, the Spirit gives you a new focus, a a new mind. Those who walk in the Spirit, those who have the Spirit, think of spiritual things, not just the things, the natural desires. And so these are the things that are already true of the believer. And so the Spirit who is at work with Additionally, to reminding us of what he has already done, the Spirit reminds us of our identity in Christ. As we see that in verses 14 through 17. We see it summarized as sonship. In other words, we see the promise made here is everyone who is in Christ has been made a son of God, adopted as sons, a child, or made a child of God. So a couple of things that are important that we clarify not everybody who is walking the face of this earth is a child of God. Everyone is created after the image of God, and therefore they are worthy of dignity. But not everybody is a child of God. Only those who have trusted in Christ, according to the scriptures, are children of God. The second thing to clarify here is everybody that is in Christ has been adopted as sons of God. Now, this is not a gender confusion issue. Nor is this an issue of male superiority whole idea of sonship is an amazing declaration that it was radical in the Middle East and anywhere that they were in a male-dominated culture. Because at the time of the writing, at the time of, of, um, uh, of Christ, um, it was a significantly male-dominated and only sons would, able, would be able to receive inheritances. And some, many families, daughters were treasure, uh, from a personal standpoint, but of no cultural value. So, the most responsible fathers would just try to find a, a good husband to provide for their daughter. Or somebody who they would love. But their investment was always in their sons. Sons alone were able to receive the inheritances and promises. The radical nature of the gospel says this who are in christ male or female there is no difference they receive the same benefits the women receive the same benefits as men in terms of the grace of god and so therefore adopted from a cultural standpoint as sonship it, it, it is a, a radical concept it means that we relate to god in a different way and it all goes on and elaborates not only are we adopted in the family but because we are adopted in the family boy girl male female doesn't really matter. Everyone who is in Christ, therefore, has the right to approach God and call Him Abba, an Aramaic word for man. It's an expression of incredible influence. This was driven home to me a number of years ago when I was working in youth ministry and I was teaching a, a Sunday school lesson and dealing with the whole idea of this Abba concept. And, and one of the young ladies that was in the uh, in, in our youth group who uh, grew up in a, a single parent home. For whatever reason, this passage struck her differently that day, and she offered kind of a personal testimony, but this with me, because we are talking about what's the difference between a father and a daddy, and she said, I have a father, I don't have a daddy." In other words, there's a guy that's walking around uh, 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 walking around someplace who had contributed to her being born, she doesn't have somebody with whom she had a relationship, whom she could trust, who loved her who, who Saying to us as the Spirit is constantly speaking to us about this truth and giving us and reminding us of who our identity is in Christ. Because you are children of God, because all of you have received the, the right of sonship, everyone who is a believer, therefore, has this relationship with God that is not just He's the creator, He is worthy of our honor and of our obedience, which is all very true, but we have this intimate relationship where we're able to come That he is inviting us into that is not available to everyone. But it does beg the question how does, this, how does this work? How do I know if I'm a child of God? Paul deals with that We see in verse 16 the Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is reminding us of who we are. But I think it's important that we kind of dig in here for a moment, because if you look at that, and and I I don't know about you, In some cases, it gets a, a little weird. For a time in college, I went to a, a church that would just say is not very Presbyterian, where we had opportunities in the worship service for people to speak what the spirits seemed to be saying to them. And, and on more than one occasion, I, I stood amazed as a couple of at different times um, always seemed to be really... stand up and say that the Spirit is testifying that he is to have a relationship with um, some girl that's in the congregation. And I couldn't help but thinking in any of those cases, it's going to have to be an act of the Holy Spirit for you to get a date with her because she is so far out of your league. But it's one of those things, it it happened over and over again, you know, and that's that, uh, that, you know, the guy is getting up and the Spirit is saying, you know, that you and I should have a date. And one time one of the girls said, well, the Spirit's not saying that to me. Um, So... I suspect it very rarely did. So, so how does this work? The spirit is testifying to your spirit. Let's just think about what does it mean that the spirit is the spirit is, is a witness. The spirit is testifying. Think about it in legal terms. What is, what is the spirit doing? He's bearing witness. He's giving testimony. Well, what is it that is his testimony? Testimony is telling the truth of what you know. What is the spirit saying then? Well the spirit is then pointing us back to everything that God has already done for us as a demonstration of his love. The Spirit is saying, look, you are broken, and he exposes our sin. He says, but God's love is greater than that. And he points us to Jesus Christ, in person, and his work as he died and as he rose again. And in the promise of God, which is for everyone who believes, we are forgiven, we are pardoned, we are redeemed. Uh, um, and we begin to see the world of love is. That's what the Spirit is testifying. other thing we need to understand is when the Spirit testifies, it is never apart from Scripture. The Spirit inspired the Scripture in the first place. So why would He need to give testimony otherwise? What the Spirit does that is distinct from the Scripture is this, that He brings to mind, He applies the Scripture as we have need. But it is never counsel that is contrary or not in line with the Scripture. And so the Spirit, He's testifying to our Spirit, who you are out of God, because of what God has done. He has loved you when you were his enemy, and he gave his only son that we might have love. The Spirit continually brings that to mind. And it's the love of God, seeing and understanding and appreciating the love of God that is the power or the tool that the Spirit is using in order to drive out other rival affections, because we see the love of God. And work more than else. Which then becomes the motive for the last thing that he says on, on how this works in, in verse 17. And so he says this: the Spirit Himself bears witness, as how it works with our Spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with uh, with uh, with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified you, that last part doesn't excite me. Well, the last part, but the right before the last part doesn't excite me. So the Spirit is testifying to us, God loves you, you belong to him, and so therefore you are a child of God. If you are a child of God, you are an heir. You are an heir with Christ. You are equal with Christ, provided you suffer with Christ. I could do without that, at least in my estimation. But it does tell us some important things. One is the TV preachers are wrong. Suffering is not an indication that God has abandoned you or doesn't care for you. Our best life is not now. We are being told in this passage that if we are a child of God, we will experience suffering in this world. In one sense, it's understandable. Because we become a child of God, and we begin to delight in God, then what God delights in, we delight in. What God hates, we hate. And then we live in a broken and fallen world. If you live in a broken and fallen world, and you love what God loves, and you hate what God hates, you're going to see a lot of things that are going to grieve you, and you're going to see a lot of things that should be done, and they're not being done. Further than that, if we have God who has worked within us in his Holy Spirit, and God is driving us, and the Spirit is driving us, then we have what God has, which is compassion. We feel for other people. And if we feel for other people in a broken world, we're going to experience heartache. Because not only do we suffer, but so does everybody else. So do the people around us. So do the people we love. So it's impossible to be like God and not have heartache in this world. It's not even necessarily about persecution, although certainly that's part of this in the world. If we love God, we may suffer for that. But we suffer even in cultures that we are not subject to persecution as part of the day-to-day life. We, our hearts are going to eat in this way. And the reason being is because God is not a lawnmower parent. I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase or even that concept. It's a relatively new sociological phenomenon. You know, right previously, uh, we were talking about helicopter parents. The so kids that go off to college, you know, they live halfway across the country, but the parents are there every weekend. Ben Robertson was talking about um, a student that he knew of whose parents have uh, the app that can track exactly where you are and so they know exactly where their daughter is every moment of the day, well, she's 20 years old, and they know exactly, they know whether she's in her dorm or whether she's, in, because these apps are, are phenomenally accurate. And so they're just tracking, tracking, tracking. One more parents go a step further. Rather than just hovering over their children, they're paving the way for their children. They're making sure their children experience no obstacles whatsoever. Whatever their children want, or whatever it is that they want for their children, they intervene. They they go before them so that the children experience no difficulties, no hardship, and can therefore easily achieve their goals. And sociologists call that lawnmower parenting because they're you know they're they're mowing everything down before them so their children have a smooth ride. But God doesn't do that because He tells us there's going to be suffering in this life if we're following Him. But it's not a punishment because he's already told us it is through the challenges and the obstacles and the pain and the suffering that builds the character and it builds the hope that shapes us into being the people that we're supposed to be in the first place. And so God saying suffering is part of it, but it's part of our identity. As children of God, he's telling us this is who we are. And as children of God, there are tremendous benefits and blessings, meaning his love. We are heirs, joint heirs with Christ, meaning we receive all the promises that God is going to give us. And then he gives us sort of a bummer. We're going to suffer, and yet if we go back and read what he says about suffering in the first place, even that's not a bummer because we realize what God is allowing and prescribing in our lives is the very thing that is shaping us and being the people that he has designed us to be in the first place. It's incredible. seems to confuse us. Like Paul, we don't do what we want to do, we do what we want to do. Every one of us suffers from spiritual ips, we don't know how to overcome it. In this passage, Paul teaches us how God is at work to nifty. He is telling us that when we are struggling, we recognize that it is the Spirit who is at work within us. Not only to identify the areas of our struggle and failure, but to remind us that He is at work, of what God has already done, and who we are in Christ, so that as He displaces these other affections with the love of God. Old affections then wither and die apart from being plugged into our lives. May the love of God be so compelling to us that no other desire rivals Him for our affections. Father, we do pray that you would be at work. Identify within us those things that are displeasing to you and harmful for us. But more than that, open our ears and our hearts to hear as your spirit testifies with our spirit. About the love that you've already demonstrated in Christ, all that you have done for us in him, and will do, and allow us to embrace our identity.